We're in the series, Who is Jesus? If you haven't picked up a copy, please do. It's only $4. I'm already reading my simplified Chinese copy and uh, just being blessed by it. So next week I start Korean. If you were up early Thursday morning, actually you didn't have to get up that early. If you were up by about 7.30, you would have seen a full moon setting in the west. And as it was setting, the sun was rising in the east. And as I saw that, as I witnessed that, I remember Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, where God says, let there be light. And as you read down through that chapter, it says that God created the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and he created the stars and separated light from darkness. God is light, and his light is always shining. Sometimes, however, as we walk through life, we feel like the darkness is overwhelming us, right? We feel as if the clouds of darkness are just settling in on our lives and the world around us. And so as you think about 2017, this year that has just begun, what kind of light will shine on your light, on your life? During the days of this last week, what illumined your days? During the nights of this last week, what kind of light was shining on you? Where did you go for light? Sometimes we feel like escaping. One of the crazy things we do in Canada is we go camping. Right? In the spring, summertime, <clears throat> we're trying to get away from everything. And we leave, we leave our comfortable homes, our comfortable condos, and we go out into the woods and live in these simple structures, often tight environments, and we think we're having fun. We actually do have good memories from those times, but it's interesting that we would do that. Now, if you have done that, Maybe on a clear night on the mountainside, you have looked up into the skies and you have seen just thousands of stars. In the darkness of the night, those stars, of course, that are always there, shine brightly. If you're in the darkness of the night, just a a firefly fluttering by, you immediately see the light. You recognize it. If you're in the darkness of the forest and you light a campfire, that that light, it dispels the darkness and fills the space. Wherever there is light in the darkness of the night, we see it, we recognize it. Today we're in John chapter 8, and the context of John chapter 8 is the Feast of Booths, which was the Israelite camping festival. It was also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. This annual feast that was celebrated in September, October. Now, you'll remember that chapter 6, the chapter that we were studying last weekend, it was set in the feast of the Passover. The Passover happened in March, April. So six months later, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and the Feast of Booths is happening, the Feast of tabernacles. The Jewish historian Josephus says that this was the greatest of all the pilgrimage feasts, that it was the most well-attended, it was the most celebrative. What happened at this feast? Well, on the first day of the feast, the people that had come to Jerusalem, they would come from all over Israel for this feast. Those that had come, they would go outside of Jerusalem and they'd find bulrushes. They would find twigs of willow and palm. 
And then they would weave them together and construct huts or booths. And during the week of the Feast of Booths, they would live in these huts, in these booths. And they would celebrate God's goodness to the people of Israel during the time in the wilderness. These temporary structures, they were reminders of how God had cared for their forefathers, how God had provided for those, their forefathers, how God had just carried them through the wilderness. And so they were remembering the past, God's faithfulness to their forefathers in the past. This feast was also a, a harvest festival. It was the time of bringing in the harvest. And so they would hang in their huts, in their booths, samples of that fall harvest. They were thanking God for his provision that year in the present, God's goodness to them. Another thing, it's important to note that in Israel, from the time of the Feast of Passover, March, April, to the time of the Feast of Booths, September, October, during those six months, it doesn't rain in Israel. And so by the time the Feast of Booths is being celebrated, Israel is dry. And during this feast, there are water-pouring ceremonies. People are crying out to God for rain. And then on the final day of the feast, the eighth day of the feast, the high priest, he would go from the Temple Mount down to the Pool of Siloam. And according to Jewish commentators, there would be thousands of people following him. He would go down to the pool of Siloam, take a picture, draw out water. Then following another route, he would find his way back to the Temple Mount, and he would pour that water in a lavish ceremony. He would pour that water on the altar, and he would cry out, How long, O God? It was a plea for rain, for the life-giving water of God. So they were asking for God's blessing, God's provision, in the future. And not only that, at this Feast of Booze, they were remembering Zechariah chapter 14, a text in the Old Testament that prophesied that a day was coming when Messiah would come. And there would be this kingdom for all peoples from all over the earth. There would be this kingdom where there would be water for all people. Water would flow from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The Feast of Booths, right from the beginning, was always for all people. It was for Jewish men and women, Jewish children, families, widows, orphans, but it was always also for the foreigners. Foreigners were welcome. And so, during the Feast of Booths, they're celebrating this future hope that the Messiah will come and his kingdom will be established and things will be set right and people will be set free from the curse of sin. So imagine the scene. The high priest, with thousands of people following him, has walked up to the Temple Mount, has poured out the water on the altar, and has cried out, How long, O God? And Jesus stands up and says, This is John 7, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus is saying very clearly to the crowd on that day, you want life? You want blessing? You want water? Come to me. I can quench the thirst of your soul. One more thing about the Feast of Booths. On the first day of the feast, 
they would set up these four massive candlesticks in the court of women in the temple. Four candlesticks, some writers say 75 feet high, that they had to use ladders to light these candles. On the first day of the feast, they would be lit, and then they would burn throughout the feast for eight days. Those candles, they were to represent the pillar of fire that guided the people of Israel through the darkness of the night in the wilderness. So throughout the week, as you circulated around Jerusalem, or if you were camping outside of Jerusalem, you would see this light glowing from the Temple Mount, symbolizing the pillar of fire. Also, As people reflected on Zechariah chapter 14, they would remember the promise that the Messiah would come and then there would no longer be day and night and there would be light for all people. In the court of of the women, according to Jewish commentators, priests, men and women, they would dance around the candles for seven days. The Talmud says the following, men of piety and good deeds would dance through the night with lighted torches in their hands, singing songs and praises. There was an orchestra, a Levitical orchestra that would accompany them. So tremendous celebration, a festive atmosphere. And then on the last day of the feast, the eighth day, these candles would be extinguished. So again, imagine the scene. These candles have been burning throughout the week. On the last, on the final day, the candles are extinguished. And in that precise moment in the court of the women where these candlesticks are standing, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the message for the Jews that are in the court of the women could not be clearer on that day. Messiah has come. The light of the world is here. You know, it's a statement so simple that a child would understand it. And yet it's so profound that educators ponder, what does it mean? What does it mean for Jesus to say, I am the light? Well, if you... If you read this verse in the original, what Jesus is saying, it's even more forceful than what we read in English. It is, I and I alone and no other am the light. Jesus doesn't say, I am just a light, one more light. He says, I am the light. A light never to be extinguished. As you read through the scriptures, you see that light, it refers to the knowledge, the glory, the character of God. Jesus comes and lives among men and women. He reveals the glory of God. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. So Jesus makes God known. He reflects the character of God perfectly. Jesus present is the light of God shining like never before. So Jesus says, I and I alone and no other am the light. And then secondly, we need to remember that this verse, chapter 8, verse 12 is set in a context. At the end of chapter 7, religious leaders are having a debate in the Sanhedrin. They're talking about who Jesus is. And Nicodemus 
says, well, why don't we just at least consider Jesus? Why don't we listen to him? And the response is, what? No prophet has ever come from Galilee, which was not true, by the way. But they say no prophet has come from Galilee, much less the Messiah. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And as he says that, he most certainly remembers Isaiah chapter 9, which says that a light has dawned on Galilee. He remembers chapter 9, verse 2, which says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so the scriptures, they prophesy the Messiah coming to Galilee. And that this light is is a light appointed for all peoples. That Jesus is the one to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, Isaiah chapter 49. It's a bold, bold claim, isn't it? caused a scandal in Jesus' day. To this day, you see, in the world today, there's a universal longing for light. Major world religions, they have their festivals of light. Hinduism, Sikhism, Jainism, Buddhism, they have these festivals of light which are a testimony to the human longing for light. Every person on the planet today is looking for light. If you Google the world's most influential spiritual leaders of our day, just write that in. Who are the most spiritual, who are the most influential spiritual leaders of our day? A list will show up. And on that list, you will see the names of Deepak Chopra, Eckhart Tolle, Oprah Winfrey. From Brazil, Paulo Coelho. You'll see these names. And all of them are trying to point to light. They're trying to lead their followers toward light. None of them are saying, I am the light. Jesus says, I and I alone am the light. And he also says, I alone am the light for all peoples. John chapter 1 verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. John chapter 1 verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so Jesus is saying to the people that are listening to him that day, I'm not just pointing to light, I am the light. And not just for the Jews, but for all people. I am the light of the world. How do the people respond on that day? Well, John chapter 8, verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. 
So you see Jesus testifying to himself in this text. Can we trust his testimony to be true? Of course, there are all kinds of witnesses to Jesus as we read the Gospel of John. There are the signs that point to him. There are the miracles, the healings. There's the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the Father, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the Scriptures. Moses himself points to Jesus. But if Jesus were to stand by himself all alone and just give testimony to himself, could we trust it? Well, if Jesus truly is the light, then he can testify to himself, as he says in the text. Verse 14, I know where I've come from. He's profoundly aware of his origin. He knows where he has come from, the Father. Verses 16 and 18, he knows who has sent him. He knows the source of his authority. He knows for whose glory he lives. Verse 14, he knows where he is going. He knows his destiny, and so Jesus says, I know my origin, the source of my authority, and my destiny. I know exactly what I'm saying, because I am the light. The meaning is stunningly clear. Now, question. Why is this unveiling of truth so resisted? Why was it resisted on that day? Why is it resisted to this day by many? Why the hostility toward Jesus on that day? There's a vigorous debate about who Jesus is in chapter 8, preceding chapters as well. And the reason is, is that there is darkness in the text. Darkness so thick that you can cut it with a knife. People are guided by the darkness of their own hearts. As you read through chapters 7 and 8, the text repeatedly says that the people actually are not listening to Jesus. What they want to do is arrest him. Some want to kill him. There's a determination to trap him, to discredit him, to eliminate him. People are not sitting and listening to him, actually hearing what he says. They're looking for a witness, a weakness. They're looking for an opportunity to catch him. They're darkened in their understanding. Jesus says they're enslaved to sin in verse 24. In John 5.44, Jesus has just healed a man and the Pharisees are resisting him and he says to them, the problem is you're actually not living for the glory of God. You're actually living for your own glory, for the glory of man. Do we see evidence of that today? People living for their own glory? I referred to that list of spiritual gurus a few minutes ago. If you read through their writings, if you listen to their talks, you will discover a common theme. They all talk about darkness. Darkness within us. Darkness in the universe. They all seek to enlighten their followers, but the message is remarkably similar. You want light? Well, then you need to enter into a higher level of consciousness. You need to discover your true self, your inner self. You need to discover that and then just be. Be the I am of your life. It's an attractive message. And there are thousands and millions of people living by that message. Be your own God. Live for your own glory. Manage your own spirituality. Don't submit 
to the God who has created all things. Don't submit to the light of Jesus. Be your own light. Just be. Jesus said in John 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You see, apart from the grace of God, apart from the light of Christ, we love the darkness of our own spirituality. We prefer to live in the world of our own spiritual glaucoma, our own spiritual cataracts, to tell ourselves that we can actually fabricate our own spirituality and determine what is true and what isn't true, that we can just be ourselves and find our own light. Because as soon as we come to Jesus, we recognize our own wickedness, our own fallenness, our own desperate need for God. At the end of chapter 6, when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, many disciples turn away. They can't hear that. In chapter 8, verse 13, when Jesus says that he is the light of the world, the Pharisees say, you're not bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Why the hard-heartedness? Why the resistance? Well, Jesus says to the Pharisees on that day, you're judging according to the flesh. You see, people, until this day, are restricted by the human standards of their lifeless religions and philosophies. People judge Jesus according to the flesh. They mark Jesus up and down according to their own criteria. They're darkened by their own understanding. In these chapters, over and over again, we see the contrast between light and darkness, the contrast between the light of Christ and the darkness of lifeless religion. For example, in chapter 5. In chapter 5, there's a man lying beside the pool, and he's been lying there for 38 years, praying that someone would come and help him. It's the Sabbath. And uh, Jesus sees him. He discerns the Father's will, and so he heals him. And the man gets up. And the religious leaders are scandalized because Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. They're concerned about the law, not about the light of Christ or the light of God or the healing of a man who is desperate. And Jesus says to them later in that chapter, you look to the scriptures for life, but you do not know the God of the scriptures. In fact, you have never heard his voice. You don't know the Father. Chapter 8, the Pharisees bring to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And it's not that they're so concerned about the woman or about keeping the law. They know that the law says that they have their permission to stone her, what they really want to do is to trap Jesus. And so they bring her to Jesus and say, okay, what should we do, Jesus? What do you think? Jesus knows their game, and so he stoops down and begins to write the ground, the sand. They keep on persisting. They say, Jesus, what do you think? And finally, Jesus looks up and he says, okay, Whoever has never sinned can throw the first stone. And they all walk away. You see, Jesus is the light of God shining. 
He tells the woman, sin no more, but he comes full of grace and truth. Chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples, they find a man born blind. And the question that's in the minds of the disciples is, who sinned, this man or his parents? They're basing their thinking not on the scriptures, but on some Jewish commentaries that say that if you're suffering, then there's sin behind it. There's all, if you suffer in this life, it's caused by sin. It's like karma. And again, Jesus says what he said in 8.12, I am the light of the world. This man has been born blind, so the light, the glory of God may shine on him. And he heals him. Again, the religious leaders are scandalized. They contest that healing. And at the end of chapter 9, Jesus says, you are blind. Confusion swirls around Jesus. Some people say he's demon-possessed. Some think that he maybe is a prophet. Others say there's no way that he's a prophet. Some think, well, maybe he is the Messiah. And others say there's no way that he's the Messiah. The religious leaders want to arrest him. Some want to kill him. The the confusion escalates. And finally, Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 43, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, the religious leaders, they live in the world of deception. Jesus says to them in chapter 8, verse 19, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also, if you knew me, if you listened to me, you would know my father. You don't know my father, therefore you don't see me. You are blind. You see, people are blinded by the father of lies. Now, how do we escape the darkness of our own understanding? How do we escape the darkness of lifeless religion, of empty philosophy? How do we escape the darkness of our spiritual enemy and enter into the light? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. It's a promise. You see, the people that would have heard those words in the temple on that day, that last day of the feast, they would have had in their minds the pillar of fire. And so the pillar of fire was guiding the people of Israel through the wilderness in the darkness of the night. When the fire moved, they would move. When the fire stopped, they would stop. So this is the imagery. That word follow that Jesus uses is a powerful word, a rich word. It's used in the context of the military. And so a soldier is waiting for the command of his superior officer. It may be a long march, it may be a long campaign, it may mean waiting in the camp, but the soldier is following the command of his superior officer. So for disciples of Jesus, we follow his commands. He's our commander. That word follow, it's also used in the context of slavery, a slave waiting for the command of his master, heeding the command of his master. And so for followers of Jesus, then we heed the commands of Jesus. It's also used in the context of counseling, a person waiting for a wise word of counsel. So if we're disciples of Christ, then we follow his counsel by the Spirit. 
It's also used in the context of citizenship. If you're a citizen of a country, then you follow the laws of the state. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of the Messiah, then you follow the commands and counsel of Christ. Well, how do we discover the commands and the counsel of Jesus? Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus invites us to come to him and to abide in his word. You don't have to earn the right to look to Jesus. You can come, no matter how darkened your understanding, no matter how much you've been influenced by the enemy, no matter what religion you might be a part of, no matter what philosophy you might be following, Jesus invites you to come and to look and to see his light. And he promises if we abide in his word, if we meditate on it, if we incorporate it, if we allow it to shape us, to illumine us, if we obey it, we will know the truth, Jesus himself. We'll be illumined by the true light of Jesus. Each day will be an exciting day of discovering who he is and the glory of what it means to walk in him. We'll be set free from our darkened hearts. We'll be set free from lifeless religion. We'll be set free from the lies and the schemes of the devil. And we'll truly live because we'll live for God's glory and not our own. So, Again, a question. What kind of light were you abiding in this week? What lit up your night? What illumined your day? We make these decisions all the time. For example, a friend of mine encouraged me to watch a series on Netflix. Every now and then I have a spare minute. So I started watching this. See, I'm confessing my sin this morning. So I'm watching this series on Netflix, and uh, the script is well written. The characters are fascinating. It's engaging. You watch it, you feel like watching the next episode, and there's always a hook, right, to keep on watching. So as I'm watching this week, all of a sudden I realize, you know what? This series, it's just one power play after another. In this story, no one trusts anyone. And all of the intimate relationships are outside of marriage. Do I really want to abide in this light? Is it restoring me in any way? Do I actually need to learn a little bit more about power plays? Do I need to learn a little bit more about the world of intrigue? Do I need to learn a little bit more about illicit relationships? Do I want to abide in this light? So I look at a number of seasons. Five seasons. Hmm. 16 episodes per season. 80 hours. Do I want to give one week of my short life to this series? And you chuckle, but we make these decisions all the time, right? What kind of light do we want to abide in? And you can't tell me that you can abide in that kind of light for 80 hours and not be influenced by it. Followers of Jesus immerse themselves in his word and live by its light. The Holy Spirit grants us a hunger for his word. And if you don't have that hunger, ask for it. Followers of Jesus abide in his word and live by its light. 
Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If we abide in Christ, we actually have the light of life within us by the Spirit. He abides in us, and our greatest joy is to walk with him. We come to an understanding of our true identity, our reason for being here. We come to an understanding of our destiny. We come to an understanding of the authority that we have in Jesus to live. We carry his presence, his light. Followers of Jesus, they radiate the light of life every day. We, as we sung earlier, right? We live to testify. Well, that is not just something we sing, but it's something that we live. If we abide in Christ, the light of life. And he's there present in our lives in every moment, in every circumstance. Sometimes... I find that Christians believe that there's just kind of this general guide for life in the Scriptures. And it's true, there is. The will of God revealed for all people. But there actually isn't counsel for the everyday stuff. We have to kind of figure it out on our own. It's a lie of the enemy. There is counsel each day of our lives. The Holy Spirit is present within us to guide us. We are to immerse ourselves in the word of Christ so that we know the truth and it sets us free and it leads us forward, the light of life within us. If you're facing sorrow, you're not meant to face it alone. When you face death, you don't face it alone. Jesus is with you. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what the moment in life, we are to walk in the light of Christ. Jesus said that if we abide in him, in his light, then we are the light of the world, Matthew chapter 5. The light of Christ radiating in and through us. I was talking with an elderly friend not too long ago, and he said that when he began to work for the government, his superior said to him, lying always outwits the truth. He didn't say it in refined English as I just did. Lying always outwits the truth. So if you want to get forward in life, lie. It's a lie of the enemy. It's the truth that stands forever, not lies. What does the Gospel of John say? John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God's light is always shining. And so we're not meant to live with this sensation, oh my goodness, the darkness is overcoming the light. Let's just hang on for dear life. The truth is that the the light of God is shining and will always shine. And if we are in Christ, if we abide in him, the light of life will shine in us and through us. We will radiate the light of life every day. Encouraged by the testimony of a young woman that works in the area of drug rehabilitation. And she said, every day that I go to work, I go with the understanding that the light of life is abiding within me. That I carry the light of Christ into those dark situations. That is God's calling on our lives. To be the light of the world. The light is there for us to counsel us to give us wisdom, discernment, no matter what the situation, but not just there for us. We are to radiate that light to others so that others might see the light of Christ. Are we living with an awareness that we carry the light of Jesus within us? You see, we live toward a day when Jesus will return. 
We lift toward an eternal festival of light, prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures, present among us through the life and teaching of Christ. We lift toward a day when all nations that have believed in Jesus will gather around the throne, and we will dance forever. We sang earlier that we will dance in the light of his love. A day is coming when Christ will return, and those that have entrusted themselves to him will live in the light of his glory forevermore. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. The glory of the God who said, let there be light in the beginning. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So we walk toward that eternal festival of light. Not just some candles burning in a courtyard for a week. We're walking toward that day when Jesus returns, and his kingdom will be established forevermore. And those who have come to Jesus... Those that have come to Jesus out of the darkness of their own understanding, out of the darkness of lifeless religion, out of empty philosophy, have come out from the lie under the lies of the enemy and have come to the light of Jesus. They will worship him forevermore and abide in the light of Christ. The light of Christ shining forevermore. So may we live with that hope, with that focus knowing that we will abide with Christ forever, and even today, Christ abiding within us and the light of life shining in and through us now, today, this week, for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So, Jesus, we thank you again for coming. Thank you for revealing the Father to us. Thank you for declaring on that day in the temple in Jerusalem, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Oh Lord, may we live the reality of the gospel. Thank you that you have come to abide within us. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to counsel us. Thank you for your word. May we abide in your word. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would just grant us a hunger for your word, to know you, Jesus. So guide us this week, we pray. Forgive us for those times when we go after other lights, when we go to other people, when we go to other places, and we don't look to you for the light that we so desperately need. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. Thank you for your grace. We ask that you speak to us this week, that you guide us as we read your word, as we pray. And may we radiate your light wherever we might be. At home, in the workplace, on university campuses, elementary schools, wherever we might be, Lord, may your light shine through us brightly for your glory. And I pray for those here this morning, Lord, that maybe have never surrendered to you. 
And I pray that if you by your spirit are drawing them to yourself this morning, that they would surrender to you. That they would say yes. That they would come to you and entrust themselves to you. That they would turn from the darkness of their own understanding. That they would turn from whatever is guiding them. And that they would turn to you the true light. The light of the world. And as they surrender themselves to you, Lord, I thank you that you will send your spirit to live within them, to guide them, to empower them to live for your glory. So I thank you. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.